Folks, uh, grab your Bibles if you haven't done so already, and uh, please turn to Philippians and chapter 1. Okay, Philippians chapter 1, we're starting just before uh, verse 19. And I will, conti- I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and help given by the Spirit of Jesus, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, and know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you, for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ will overflow on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and I see you, or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This will be a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. But it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to, the, to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, since you were going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Well, thanks, Alan. It's always nice to follow a man who's got less hair than I have, which isn't a very common experience for me, I must say. <laughs> but, uh, yeah... Right, let's turn to the scripture, shall we? And um, let's think about these verses that we've read together from Philippians and chapter 1. I want to ask you three questions this morning. Question number one, what is your passion in life? What do you love the most, in other words? What matters most to you? Question number two, what is your purpose in life? What are you here for? What are your goals? What are your ambitions? What do you really want to do? So what's your purpose in life? The third question I want to ask is what are your priorities in life? What's top of your to-do list? What dictates the way you spend your time and your money? Three really important questions actually. I don't know if you've ever asked yourself those questions. I don't know what your answer would be. And the questions as well that relate to another, aren't they? They flow on from one another. So your passion in life, what you really love the most, is going to largely dictate what your purpose in life is. It's going to drive your goals and ambitions, isn't it? What you love, you're going to live for. And your purpose in life is going to drive and dictate your priorities. Because you're going to start reordering what you do and how you live in order to achieve what you most want to achieve, the thing that you most love. Do you see what I'm saying? So, those three issues are really, really crucial. Now, if you were to ask those questions of a materialistic person, then you'd get certain answers, wouldn't you? For example, you ask a materialist what his passion is, and he'd say, well, I love things. I just love getting things, the latest gadgets, a new car, a new house. And I uh, just love going uh, out shopping. 
That's my passion. Can't imagine why anyone would have a passion for shopping. Uh, but anyway, there we are. But uh, if you asked the materialist that, he'd say, yeah, I just want to, I just love things. And then if you said, well, Mr. Materialist, what is your purpose in life? He'd say, well, my purpose, my ambition, is to get as many things as I possibly can before I die. And then if you said, well, Mr. Materialist, what is your priority in life? He would say perhaps something like this, I need to make as much money as I can to buy as many things as I can. Because that's my passion. And I guess if you were to talk to people, you'd get many different answers to those questions. For some, it might not be materialism. For some, it might be a career. Uh, You know, it might even be a person. I read about a Welshman recently who had been rebuffed by a certain lady for 42 years. He'd written 2,184 letters to her and he'd not got a single reply. So finally, this rather shy man plucked up courage to knock on this woman's door and uh, she answered and uh, he asked her to marry him and she agreed. And they were married at the age of 74. (laughs) Now that is some passion, isn't it? 42 years, that was his passion. And it drove him, didn't it? It might be a person. Uh, I think for a lot of people, actually, particularly young people and particularly fellas, sport can be the passion of their life, can't it? got a phone call from a friend recently. I won't mention Vinny's name in case he's embarrassed. But uh, he said, uh, Paul, I've got two, two tickets to go to Old Trafford. Do you want to come? So, uh, I do come from Leeds. Uh, but I'm also a Yorkshireman. That gave me a great dilemma. You know, I, I don't want to miss anything for free, but I'm, you know, going to watch Manchester United. Anyway, I, I took this dilemma and he decided to keep Vinnie company. So I went along, we met up in Manchester, and then uh, we went down to the ground and we, we, we filed into this, this game with thousands of other, 70-odd thousand or whatever it was, other Manchester United fans. And uh, we got a seat right behind the goal at one end, just a few rows from the front. And uh, it was ama- is an amazing experience, I've got to say. You know, all those fans. And, and you can see the passion on their faces, can't you? And you can, you can hear the passion in their voices as they're cheering for their team and Rain, Wayne Rooney is running up the wing. But then he turned to me at one point and said, uh, Paul, have a look at this. And he pulled out from his jacket this banner that he unfolded. <laughs> it, was, it was made out of sort of day-glow orange paper. And it had on it, in big, bold letters, John 3.16. And then I realised why Vinny had got me to go with him. Because I was going to be with him, holding his banner up. And sure enough, whenever the ball came down our end of the pitch and where Rooney was going to score a goal, up went the day glow banner. And um, uh, I've got to say, there was a slight clash of passions here. Because one or two people behind were trying to say, get that down. And the guy next to us who got his tea chipped into his lap when the banner went up wasn't too chuffed either. But um, what's your passion this morning? Well, I don't want to embarrass Vinny, but I've got to say, um, his passion was Christ and to tell us about Jesus. It was amazing how many conversations we had. You know, who's John? <laughs> <Was it>? um, <laughs> very, very interesting. Um, and it opened up some real opportunities and at half time the mascot came round this was a really funny bit the mascot came round dressed as I don't know what it was some animal and, and he said here grab this banner <laughs> so at half time the Manchester United mascot was going round with this John 316 <laughs> banner absolutely true I promise you 
it was, it was, it was hilarious, it really was. But uh, there you are, so if you want a, an experience, go to a football match with Vinny, you'll never forget it. What is your passion this morning? Now, I want us to ask that question of the Apostle Paul here, to kind of interview him, because I reckon we've got the answer in this passage that we read in Philippians chapter 1. What would Paul say if we asked him these questions? Well, first of all, Paul, what's your passion in life? Verse 21, this is what Paul would say, wouldn't he? For me to live is Christ. Actually, it's not a thing, it's not an it, it's a person, says Paul. My passion is Jesus. You can sum up my whole life of what I'm really all about in that one word, that one person, Jesus Christ. For me to live is Christ, says Paul. And to be honest, uh, I can't wait for the day when I die and I can be with him forever. Look at verse 23. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Paul says, I love him so much that I just long to be in his presence for all of eternity. This is my passion. This is the great love of my life, Christ. And actually, Paul would say to us, it should be the passion of every Christian. It's not beach missions that should be our passion, is it? It's not our church that should be our passion. We should be on beach missions as we should be in our church, but we should be there because Christ is our passion. That's the challenge, isn't it? That was the heartbeat of the Apostle Paul. Oh, I love Christ, says Paul. And I long to spend time with him. And I look forward to that day when I'll be with him. And I pour over his words to me. You know, more, more avidly than any lover could pour over a love letter. I love Jesus. And so Paul says, yes, I love him. He's, he's everything to me. And I long to be with him. You know, only the person who really loves Jesus can say what Paul says in the end of verse 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The materialists can't say that, can they? For the materialistic person, death is a disaster. It is. Because he leaves everything behind. His money, his house, his toys. Death is to be feared for the materialist. But Paul says, not for the person who loves Jesus. You see, death is only to be, to be feared in the degree that it threatens to rob us of our greatest loves. Of the thing that we value the most. Paul says, death for me is to be looked forward to because it will actually give me in greater measure the one I value most. The one I love the most. So Paul can say, to die is gain. My parents died a couple of years ago and at the funeral of my father, the, the minister, the preacher, spoke on this text. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Um, I have an unconverted sister who actually lives in America. She was really angry at the funeral. She was angry with the preacher and she was angry with myself and my brothers and sisters who are all Christians. And the reason she was angry was this. She said, how can he say that death was gain for my dad? It's my dad in that coffin. And how can you be so happy? How can you rejoice at the death of dad. She couldn't understand it. You see, non-Christians can't, can they? They don't understand it at all. But yet, there were tears, but there was also joy. We could rejoice because we knew where dad had gone. 
That's exactly what the preacher was saying. It's true for every Christian, isn't it? If we really love Jesus, to die is gain. Can I ask you, is Christ the passion of your life? Well, let me put it another way. Is Christ still the passion of your life? Was he the passion of your life once and that love's grown cold? Be diverted onto other things? Secondly, Paul, what's your purpose in life? Well, look at verse 20. This is what Paul would say, wouldn't he? This is my purpose in life. My passion is Christ, and so my purpose, verse 20, he says there, well, look at this, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul says, my great purpose can be summed up in these Three or four words. Christ will be exalted. That's the great purpose of my life. Or as one version puts it, Christ will be honoured. Or as uh, the RAV, authorised version puts it, Christ will be magnified in my body. That is my great purpose. Remember when you, when you see that word magnify in the Bible... The Bible talks about magnifying the Lord, doesn't it? Here Paul says, we want to magnify Christ in our body. Remember what kind of magnification it is. It's not the magnification of the microscope, but it's the magnification of the, the telescope. The microscope makes little things look large, doesn't it? We can never say that of Jesus. That would be a blasphemy, wouldn't it? What Paul is talking here about is the, micro, the, the magnification of a telescope. He's saying, you know, those little twinkling stars in our context today, those little twinkling stars that you can see in the sky, they look so small, but, but today when we look at them through a powerful microscope, we can see them for what they really are. Huge balls of gas. Huge suns. Some of them many, many times bigger than our own sun. And so to magnify Christ is to help people to see Jesus for who he really is. Almighty, awesome, great. And Paul says that's the great motive, the great purpose of my life. I want as many people to see how great Jesus really is as possible. That is what I'm about. That's my ambition, says Paul, to magnify Jesus like that. I want them to value him highly in the way that he should be valued. That's a very natural thing, isn't it? You know? If you love someone, then you do want them to be loved by others. You know, talk to any parent, talk to any partner. And actually, the greatest hurt is when the person whom you love is belittled or ignored or ridiculed. And Paul says, it's like that for me with Jesus. The greatest joy in my life is when people worship Jesus for who he really is. When people get converted and understand who Christ really is for the first time. And for those who are converted, love Christ even more. And honour him even more in their lives. And conversely, the greatest hurt that I feel is when the name of Jesus is not honoured. Remember a guy speaking of how in his workplace he had a real problem in that... um, People were using the name of Christ as a swear word and it really, really began to upset him. The name of Jesus, just as a curse. And one day he uh, decided he'd try an experiment and what he did was this, when he went to work, he, um, 
he began when anything went wrong in the office to say the name of the wife of uh, one of the men that was perhaps the worst blasphemer. So if anything went wrong, you know, he banged his finger, he'd say, oh, Mary. And uh, if he stubbed his toe, oh, no, Mary. Or if he spilt his tea, Mary. Anyway, this, um, this non-Christian guy, by the end of the day, got really annoyed and offended. He said, what do you mean? Every time something goes wrong, you take the name of my wife. What are you doing? And the Christian said, well, do you know, the way you feel about that is exactly the way I feel about how you take the name of Jesus. I love him. And it hurts me deeply when you take his name as a swear word. Now, I'm not recommending that as a method of evangelism. I'm not especially sure he was right to do it. But I I do think he got the point across, didn't he? Yeah? I wonder if it bothers you when the name of Jesus is used as a swear word. Or maybe we've just come so accustomed to hearing it. It kind of brushes over us. Should hurt us deeply, shouldn't it? And so Paul says here in verse 20, I eagerly expect and hope that I'll be no way ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so Christ may be exalted in my body. What's he talking about there? Well, as you probably heard last night, if you didn't, I'll tell you again, Paul was writing from Rome where he was in prison. He was on trial for his life. He was facing possible execution. And Paul was human, just like you and me. Don't get the idea, will you, that it was just a breeze for Paul. You know, he never got nervous, he never got scared. Of course he did. And Paul says, actually, you Philippians, pray for me. And and I'm praying that, that when I stand for Christ, I will stand boldly. And I'll give a good and a... And, and a courageous testimony for him. And I won't let him down. Because I don't want others to belittle him on my behalf. I um, sometimes the dad has the job of going to um, sports day. I've got four kids. And so I've been to quite a few sports days, when I can anyway, over the years. And our, our, pri- our kids' primary school, they have the dad's race at the end of the sports day. Now, I don't know if any of you dads can sympathise with this, but you know what it's like. Actually, it's what we do to people on a beach mission, isn't it, really? You know, come on, dads, where are you? Come on down. So, you're on the... It's good to be on the receiving end sometimes and see what it's like. And uh, you see all these dads going out to the start line and, and they're all sort of pretending to limber up, you know. And, uh, and then the whistle goes, the head blows the whistle, and off these dads go. And you see the look on their faces. And they're straining every... Literally straining every muscle to try and get to that finishing line. And, uh, and then one of them wins. Of course, one of them's got to lose. Um, and it's not, it's not a nice feeling to lose. But I think one of the reasons why it's so difficult to lose at that race is because you've got all the little faces looking on, including your own son. And you know that if you're the dad that comes in last, he's got to live with that for the rest of the day. You know, ah, your dad came in last. And I'm going to get it in the neck when I get home as well. Dad, why didn't you run faster? So you get the idea, don't you? I'm going to give it all I've got. I just don't want to be last over the finishing line. Because I've got a little boy there. Yeah? And it matters to me, actually. What he thinks and how he feels. Same idea here with Paul. Paul is saying, look, I'm going to give my, my, my Christian life and my testimony, everything I've got, I'm going to strain every muscle that I have. Why? 
Not because my name's on the line, but the name of Christ. I want him to be honoured. That's the great goal of my life. I don't want to fail this test, says Paul. I want Christ to be exalted in my life. And if I can't live, I want Christ to be exalted in my death. Either way, doesn't matter to me, says Paul. Either way, as long as Christ is honoured, that is all that matters to me. F.B. Mayer, famous Christian in the uh, uh, 19th uh, century. He, um, he was dying. And he was talking to some friends about how they would remember him and his funeral, etc. And this is what he said. He said, tell them not to talk about the servant, but to talk about the saviour. That's a great motto, isn't it? Don't want them to talk about me. But all that they might be talking about Christ because of me. That's the purpose. That's the ambition of my life, says Paul. Is it your ambition? Or actually, do we quite like it when people talk about us? And we're in the limelight. Thirdly, Paul, what was your priority in life then? What was the top of your list? What did you want to spend your time doing and give your efforts to? Well, look at verse 22. Paul says, If I'm to go on living, and uh, he believes he will go on living, but, but he still says if. You know, he's, he's recognising that it's in the Lord's hands. He hasn't got a hotline to heaven. And he says, If I go on living, then this is what I'm going to spend the rest of my life doing. It will mean what? Verse 22, fruitful labour for me. Now, earlier on, he's just said, for me to live is Christ. Now he's saying, for me to live will mean fruitful labour. But I want you to realise that actually the two are exactly the same thing. You see, what was Paul's priority? How did he spend his waking moments? He spent them in service for Christ. Because for Paul to live for Christ was to serve Christ. The two are the same thing, you know. Being a Christian is not about sitting on your backside waiting for God to bless you. It's not about sitting back waiting for some, you know, zap from heaven. We're saved to serve. And actually, service is worship. And if we love Christ, we'll be serving Christ with all that we've got. Labouring for him. And what was that labour going to involve for the Apostle Paul? What was that labour really all about? Well, look at verse 25. He says, Convinced of this, I know that I'll remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. He says, this labour that I'm involved in, and this fruit that I'm working for, really is a labour for you Christians. And the fruit that I want to see and I'm working for is the fruit of your spiritual progress and growth. That's what I'm about, says Paul. I want to see you grow and go on in the Lord. And verse 27, I want to see you as, as believers in Philippi living a life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. That is going to bring great honour to his name. That's what I want. That's the priority and that's what I'm going to give my time and energies and efforts to labouring so that that will happen. And it seems to me there are three aspects of, of that spiritual growth that Paul was labouring for and looking at the fruit that he was looking for in the life of these Philippians. First of all, he desired that these Philippian Christians would stand firm in the face of opposition. Look at verse 27. Then whether I come and see you 
or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm without being frightened in any way, at the end of that verse he says, by those who oppose you. Paul says, I am labouring so that you as Christians might become established in your faith and then stand firm in the face of persecution. And these Christians were facing persecution. As were so many of those first believers. This is what A.W. Tozer says. He says, those first believers turned to Christ with the full understanding that they were espousing an unpopular course that could cost them everything. They knew that from henceforth they'd be a member of a hated minority group with life and liberty always in jeopardy. That's right. When they joined the church, they knew that they were going to be public enemy number one. They were going to become the target of, of ridicule and even physical violence. That was the normal Christian life, you know, in the New Testament church. And that is why Paul says there in verse 29, here's a wonderful promise for your promise box. Not too many Christians want to claim this promise in Scripture. Paul says, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Just as I am suffering, says Paul. Because that's the deal when you're a Christian. That's what it's all about. Only if you've recognised that. Or you just sort of flummoxed when you face opposition. Just a bit sort of shocked by the ferocity of people's, I don't know, ridicule. No, says Paul, expect it. It's the normal Christian life. And actually, living a, a, a life for him is about standing in the face of that kind of opposition. Helen Rosevere, who was a missionary for many years, of course, in, in Africa, um, lovely, godly lady. If you ever get a chance to listen to her, she still speaks occasionally, although she's probably in the 70s by now, but she's a lovely, godly lady. We had her at a house party um, speaking not so long ago. And she said this, she said, you know, I went through some terrible experiences in Africa, and she did. She was um, captured by some rebel soldiers. She was raped by one of them, brutalised, along with other missionaries. And she said, when I got home, really a broken person after my experiences, all that had happened to me, and I look back on my, my years as a missionary in Africa, I asked myself the question, after all I've been through, was it worth it? Was it really worth all of that agony? She said, I realised the answer was no. And I looked at what we'd achieved. Hadn't been worth it. And then she said, I realised, or the Lord told me, I was asking the wrong question. Not was it worth it, but was he worth it? And she said the answer then had to be a thousand times yes. He was worth it. He is worth it. I'm standing for him. Yes, it's costing me. Costing me deeply. Paul says, it may cost me my life. But he is worth it. He's my passion. It's got to be worth it, hasn't it? Oh, Paul says to these believers, stand firm in the face of opposition. Because you're standing for Christ. Secondly, stand together in the face of possible division. Again, look at verse 27. He says, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man. See the emphasis there? 
You're standing together. You're a unit and you're unified. Now that was very important in the context of, 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 of the Philippian church because as we're going to see later on there were all kinds of divisions going on and, and people were falling out and having arguments. Nothing changes, does it? Just like the church today. Just like some beach mission teams if we're honest. But here's the challenge, says Paul. Stand as one. Don't fall out. Don't shoot your own side, you know. Learn who the enemy is. Actually support one another. Encourage one another. And work together. Why? Again, it's because it's all for Jesus, isn't it? If our passion is Christ, and if our purpose is to see Christ exalted, and if Christ is going to be exalted by us cooperating and working together in the church of God, then we're going to lay aside our differences, aren't we? Our our, our petty personality clashes. Our our personal egos that rub up against each other so often. We're going to say they don't matter. Why? Because he matters. All that matters is him. That he's honoured and glorified. And so we're going to pull together. We're going to work together. Actually, we're going to love one another as well. Not just going to be a drudge and a duty, but we're going to love one another. But we're going to do it because, supremely, we love him. He's going to be the glue that's going to bring us together. Stand together in the face of divisions. And then thirdly, stand up for the gospel of Christ, even in the face of unbelief. He says there, verse 27, doesn't he? He says, I will know, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. They're standing, and they're standing together to do what? To strive, to contend for the faith of the gospel. And I think the context here, he's talking here about witnessing. He's talking about sharing their faith with others. That's what it means to contend for the gospel. It means when there's an opportunity to speak for Christ at school or at work or at college, you do. Even though you know you're going to get it in the neck. Or some are going to laugh. Or smirk. Or ridicule you. Or think less of you. You're still going to do it. Even though you know some people are going to react and they're going to you know, they're going to want to pull you down and they're going to ask you those awkward questions. You're going to do it. Why? Because you're contending for the gospel. You're doing it for Christ. It's not easy to witness, is it? Perhaps that's why so many Christians don't witness. It's hard work. It really is a battle. And nothing is harder when you, than, than when you meet indifference, and apathy, or worse still, antagonism and opposition. And that is what's going to happen, says Paul. He goes on to say that actually, this will be a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. So actually, part of our witness is bringing the judgment of God to men and women. That's not easy, is it? We don't want to do that. See, I want to be popular. I want to be liked. I want to be loved. I want people to accept me. So hard. Rico Teich talks about crossing the pain barrier in witnessing. And I think there really is a pain barrier in witnessing. The pain barrier comes when we know that people don't like it, they don't want to hear it, and they're going to react against it. And you think, 
Do I really want to get that flack? So hard to talk about some of the things we need to talk about, like sin and judgment. But Rico's right, we've got to cross the pain barrier and we've got to contend for the gospel and get that message out to a lost world. Why? Because Christ is our passion. Because we love him. Because our purpose is to see Christ exalted. What better way for to see Christ exalted than his name being proclaimed in the world? And yes, some people coming to trust him as Lord and Saviour. And that is our priority, to labour for those things. So, we're going to be there at the open air. It's going to be a priority. We're going to be there on beach missions. It's going to be a priority. That's how we're going to spend our leisure time. That's how we're going to use our efforts. And we're not going to give Jesus the fag end. You know, the little bit that maybe we can squeeze in at the end of, of our busy lives. No, we're going to say, Lord, I'm going to lay aside other things, sometimes good things. But I'm going to lay them aside for the best thing. Because my priority is to labour for you. I know that it might be fruitful labour. So, I go back to my original questions. Just in your own heart this morning, think about this. What is my passion? Honestly, come on, be honest. What do you love the most? What is the love of your life? Yeah, it's right to love your wife. It's right to love your husband. Of course, it's a command of Christ. And we should love one another. But does all of that flow out of a supreme passion, a supreme love for Jesus himself? Is he the passion of your life? What's the purpose of your life? If you're honest this morning, he's saying, well, to be honest, my purpose is, is just to get that good job and that nice salary and that comfortable house and those fancy holidays and that nice car. Do you know, as Christians, it can be as base and as basic as that, can't it? It can. What should your purpose be? To exalt Christ in life and death. So what are your priorities? How are you going to spend next week? Next Saturday? Next Sunday? Next summer? How are you going to spend your money, your salary? Because that's where it comes right down to, isn't it? How are you going to spend your life in service, in labour for Christ? Seeking to stand for him against opposition. To stand as one with other Christians. And to stand up for the gospel. And to tell it to a lost world. Trust that's going to be my passion, my purpose, my priority, and yours too. Amen. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, as we think about these challenging words of the Apostle Paul, we think about that challenging life, as we get that very personal glimpse into that servant of yours and what made him tick. Lord, he's a rebuke to our passionlessness, to our... To, to our hearts that are so easily diverted and distracted by other loves. He's rebuked, Lord, to, to some of our goals and ambitions that, that, that really don't include you. Some of the priorities that we have that are very selfish, self-centred. Oh God, give us a passion for you. Give me a passion for Christ. 
Increase that passion. Oh God, help me. In my life, whether by, in my body, whether by life or death, to exalt the name of Jesus, to magnify Him. And oh God, in my day by day decision making, may that passion, that purpose dictate my priorities. How I spend my time and my money. What I do with my weekends. Oh God, may it be dictated by that one all-consuming truth. For me to live is Christ. Amen.